0: Welcome to Recovery Corner, where the many pathways of recovery intersect. This is a space where you will hear personal stories of triumph in recovery, gain insights into various recovery-oriented systems, and learn how leaders across the country are building recovery-ready communities. Recovery Corner is brought to you by Young People in Recovery. YPR is a recovery support service organization that engages people in and seeking all pathways of recovery, as well as their allies. Recovery Corner podcast does not provide clinical advice. The following episode contains themes and discussions of substance use disorder, specific substances, suicide, sexual assault, and violence that may be distressing for some listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling with any of these experiences, you can find resources on our website at youngpeopleinrecovery.org forward slash resources forward slash. Please note that these resources are supplementary and are not meant to replace another recovery pathway or the help of a professional. Remember, recovery is possible and we are in your corner.
1: Hi friends, Uh, welcome to the Recovery Corner Corner podcast produced by young people in recovery. Um, In today's episode, it's exciting. We're launching our series called Recovery Stories, where we have authentic and vulnerable conversations with people about their experiences in recovery and on the healing journey. Um, our intention with this episode and the series is to provide inspiration and new ideas to help support you on your recovery journey. Um, our goal with that is to help you create some insights, maybe even some epiphanies um, about what it's like to be on a healing path and maybe to provide some tools and su- uh, ideas and support for you along the way. So I'm Brian, Brian Uckles. I'm a staff member of YPR and a chapter lead in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm also with Carly, who's my uh, wonderful co-host. Say hello to the people, Carly.
2: Hello. (laughs) Is this where I say something about myself? (laughs) Yeah, why
1: don't you give us a little intro? That'd be nice. Yeah,
2: well, I'm Carly. I am the San Diego chapter lead. um, And I work with the national team, Young People in Recovery. Really excited to be working on this podcast and talking to awesome people like Matt, who... (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, I know from a partner site that I work with called Confidential Recovery. He's a counselor there um, and a person in recovery. I don't know. I feel like I want to tell people (laughs) kind of like how I met Matt because it's kind of funny. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I was at the site just saying hello to new counselors and stuff, and I met Matt. And the um, program manager introduced us. And I remember being like, this guy looks like really familiar. And I <laughs> couldn't place where I knew him from. Um, and like, I don't know, a couple days later, whenever I realized that like, this is the guy that I know from that Instagram um account who posts all these stories because you post yourself on there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, a life yeah, recovered. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we talked about that later. But I yeah, I guess we'll talk about a life recovered a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but how are you doing, Matt? <laughs>
3: So I'm doing well. Um, I'm glad I got to carve out some time here um, for everybody listening. And you guys, uh, you know, I have a new baby at home, which is one of the gifts that we talk about from this program, getting to be there and be present for her and, you know, take care of her now that I'm able to take care of myself. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Working from home today. So got nice. some time.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, congrats on the exciting addition to your family. Um, That's fun. So we're here now where, you know, you're working from home and you're able to be present with your family, but maybe could we start with just a little bit about your story or whatever you want to say about that. So what's your recovery story, Matt?
3: So, yeah, I mean, it's like anybody's it's, it's a long one, but basically it starts out where, you know, I was, I'm originally from Connecticut. Um, and I was adopted at a very young age, a couple weeks old. Um, I was adopted from Fort Worth, Texas. My parents came and picked me up down there. Um, you know, for some reason, my mom just couldn't conceive. Um, you know, women have difficulty sometimes and they decided to adopt. And all of a sudden, then she had my brother and my sister. So I'm the only one adopted in my family. Um, I am the oldest. Um, I grew up with every opportunity to succeed. Um, I had a, a wonderful childhood Um, you know, it's funny every time I went to treatment and I'll get all into that, but every time I went to treatment and detox and all, they always try to pinpoint, well, well, what happened? Why are you like this now? What happened? Where's the trauma? Where's the childhood? You know, and that was one of my most difficult things is I, I didn't really have that, you know, I, I had a, I had every opportunity to succeed. Like I said, and I had a good childhood. I was, my parents are very successful. They're still married. You know, they just hit 40 years of marriage. Um, and so I grew up, you know, playing sports and and doing the, just living a very normal life, you know, out in Connecticut. And um, as I got into high school, you know, I was I was always a guy that, you know, at a young age, even in fifth grade, I was getting most humorous. And, you know, I was always class clown and the guy who really wanted to put on a show for everybody. And I really liked to be liked by everybody. Like, I didn't want one person in the room to not like me you know what I mean? That would upset me. I want, but what that led to early in high school was me kind of being a little bit of a different, as, as you get older, those groups separate, you know, you have, uh, they're separated by music or they're separated by sports or they're separated by, uh, you know, interests, whatever. And I wanted to appeal to all those groups. So I could see as ninth grade was approaching, I was kind of, um, kind of like a chameleon of sorts, appealing to different groups and kind of changing who I was to meet Others' expectations. Um, and I think that was kind of a, a catalyst, I think, for for some of the things that happened to me later on. But, um, you know, I had a very slow introduction into mind altering substances and alcohol. You know, I had my first sip of Coors Light probably at like 15 or 16. I smoked weed for the first time at like 16. Um, I didn't, I, I wasn't off to the races, you know, it was just a little bit here and there and, and that's cool. And I wasn't, it wasn't a dire search for it after I first had it, you know? Um, but then, you know, I, I could see my, my grades were starting to slip later on in public high school. And my parents made a recommendation that, Hey, we have the money to send you to a boarding school. Um, and here's this great option. And I don't know how they enticed me to do it, but they did. And it was an all boys Episcopalian school, coat and tie every day. Um, no. <laughs> I don't know why. I think I was just so over my public school at that point. I had gotten like caught for cheating and stuff. And I was embarrassed. And I said, you know what, let me just go try this new thing. And I don't know why I said yes, but I, I did say yes. And I ended up going and it was in upstate New York. And it was a blessing and a curse because that was the first time that I had structure introduced into my life. You know, there was chapel in the morning and classes. And then as soon as classes are done, you, you know, you play sports. And then after that, you get cleaned up, do a little homework. And then there's dinner, there's specific meal times, you know, and there's expectations and things that you have to do there. Um, And it was a good school. It was where I first saw structure and I did very well. Mm-hmm. I was co-captain of my varsity golf team. I was the, uh, I was writing for the newspaper. I was, I got like the ethics award for this class. I mean, I was doing really well. I was in like, they have a list of like where everybody's at and it's all like at the combined scores, like athletics grades, like all this stuff. And I was like eighth out of like 90 kids, you know what I mean? So I was doing really well. I, I brought, I, I, through the structure, I was able to get on a higher level, which was awesome. But also with that came more drugs and alcohol because we were a school that was a boarding school. We're there 24 seven. Um, I stayed there on most weekends and you have day students that come and they drop off alcohol or they bring whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. and then they leave it for us to do on the weekends or we buy it from them or whatever. So that's where I was first introduced to most of the hard drugs, um, cocaine, ketamine. Uh, you know, we had, we had guys from like all over the area and we had one guy who had a horse farm. And so he had ketamine that he would boil down and bring the powder in. And so we'd all be like walking around high as hell, you know, throughout the dorm on the weekends and just like really crazy, like bizarre shit, you know? And, um, that's kind of where, you know, I started, I got introduced to pharmaceuticals there and then oxys and benzos and all that stuff. And, um, I started to really enjoy that stuff, you know, like I was really good student during the week, but I really went hard on the weekends and I didn't even want to go home to Connecticut because I knew that this was waiting for me on the weekends and I could, I could get high here, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I graduated there and I left there and I went to the university of Rhode Island. So I did a couple of years at that school And I, you know, I did well, I was able to get into a a decent college. And because that's what you do in my area, every parent talks about, Hey, where's your kid going to school? Where's your kid going to school? You know? And like, I was a very, I was on the less impressive end, which whatever. Um, But I was, I was doing it and I went to college and all of a sudden I went to college and I lost all that structure. So I went to college and I just started doing, I was doing cocaine every day. I was just, I mean, I'm not going to get into it all or war stories, but it was just chaos. It was, there was absolutely no productivity. Nothing good came out of it. I am surprised I even made it into my sophomore year by the sophomore year, by May, I was, I had stopped going to classes. I had straight F's throughout. um, And they basically sent me a letter and said, Hey, you're not invited back, dude, like peace. You know? Mm -hmm. And I I looked at the letter and I was like, that's fair. I haven't done anything. And my parents were pissed of course, because they had funded two years of for nothing. Um, and so I got back there and once I got back home, you know, I was into other stuff again and I was just, it started this cycle of just starting things and not finishing them. And I was okay with that. You know, I, I just wanted to do what they think I should do or what's the next best thing for Matt or what will get me through the next month, you know? And, um, eventually, you know, I was doing so much cocaine over there that I did have an intervention. I had an intervention, in 2010, after a concert at Webster Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, I had come back, and the next morning I had an intervention. And it was just like you see on TV. It was a whole room of people—my friends, my parents, family—all in this room. And what I was aggravated about, though, was some of my friends I had done cocaine with like a few nights before. I'm like, "Why are you sitting on the couch right now, dude?" You know? So I was—I wasn't—I wasn't there to like look at myself. I was there to be like what about him he he you know what i mean i was just i was still uh i still regarded it as a phase i was playing blame game and they all said you know we're so worried about you I mean, looking back, yes, I went harder than anybody, you know what I mean? When it was like 12 or one or two o'clock, I was like looking for, you know, AM, I was looking for the next thing to go to. I didn't want the party to end. I liked uppers. I like going for days at a time. I don't want to sit in the couch and melt away. You know, I want to go, go, go what's next. And, um, and it caught up with me and my parents basically said, here's two choices. You can get the fuck out of our house or you can join the military because you did well with structure. Remember? So you can go do that. And so I said, okay, well, that's not a lot of options. Uh, I don't really have anything to do. I don't have any money. I'm like working at a fucking deli part-time, like barely getting by just to buy IPAs. Like it was, it was shot. So I said, okay, I'll join the military. So I joined the military, and, you know, I've always been a guy that likes um, when others run away from the fire, I run towards it. I like the intense stuff. So I said, well, if I'm going to do the military, I better join the special operations program. So I worked to get a contract for special operations for about a year. So I worked out with the special warfare New England guys, um, and I ended up getting a Navy diver contract. And so I got a contract to go into boot camp as a Navy diver in SpecOp Boot Camp March of 2011. So March of 2011, I left for boot camp, and um, I was using up until that. Um, but obviously, I was I was done after that, and I wasn't. It wasn't an. It still wasn't an everyday thing at that point. It was more just I. When I did it, I went really hard, you know, and I knew I had to stop. And I went to boot camp, and you know they ask you that you do this whole. And I'm way out of the military now, so I can talk about it, but um, you do this whole intake and have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? No, absolutely not. No, nope. Never smoked weed. Nope, nope, nope. So you get in and of course, you know, I tested clean. So, okay. He's never done that. It's great. Awesome. Um, shiny guy, shiny guy, you know? (laughs) So anyway, so I, I got in my boot camp was, uh, made up of SEAL, SWIC, EOD, Air Rescue, and Navy Divers. So SEALs, Navy SEALs, obviously. SWIC are Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewmen. Those are the guys that pick up and drop off SEALs um, on their missions. Air Rescue are the guys from the helicopters that are grabbing people out of the water. EOD is like the Hurt Locker Explosive Ordnance guys, and then Divers us. So there was the five jobs. So it was it was hard. I mean, it was the hardest thing I had ever done up until I got sober. Um, but it was it was hard. It was nine weeks of hell. Um, but it was awesome. I got out of there. We started with like 95 guys. We left with like 62. So we had dropped quite a few along the way. And um, I got out of there and I went to follow on training. And of course, um, I wanted to party. Uh, I went out and uh, they told me at the training command, the only thing you have to do is not drink. You can't drink during these next eight weeks. We had a couple different trainings that we had to do before we were officially in the military. And, uh, and I drank and they decided to make an example out of me and a few people. And they sent me undesignated. So they took away my contract. They took away my job. They took away everything. And they sent me to the fleet overseas to Japan on an aircraft carrier with no job bottom of the fucking barrel. After I had just done all this training and made it through boot camp and everything. So, um, I was just so defeated. I was so upset. I was so embarrassed. I didn't know how to tell my family. I made up an excuse that it was injuries, this and that, when it was my alcoholism and I still regarded it as a phase and we're years in of consequences now, you know, and along, along the way that I didn't mention there's crashed cars, there's all this other stuff too, you know? And, uh, so I had a chip on my shoulder and i just became a complete fucking alcoholic um 2011 through 2017 i was during 2011 through 2014 i was in japan we did four deployments in the asia pacific Um, when i hit port and we went into these asian countries um i mean i ran amok i won't get into it but it was not good behavior um Mm -hmm. with 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 women with drugs in the philippines i had tried meth for the first time in the philippines while active duty, a couple days in a port visit, like in a hut in the Philippines, smoking crystal, because that's the drug of choice over there. And now the the president, now it's like, you get executed if you're caught with that stuff. You know what I mean? And like, it's just, it was wild. I just look back at some of the things I did, it was just chaos, but you know, my luck did eventually run out. I came over to, uh, I had met a girl when I was on leave around the 2014 time. And, uh, when I got out to San Diego after being stationed in Japan, so I got stationed here. So this is, this is now I'm finally in San Diego where I've been now. And, uh, I got out here, I was stationed in Coronado. I picked up shore duty. So I did a few years overseas and then I had a few years here. Um, and I was in Coronado and I moved my girlfriend out with me and, and, you know, I figure, well, you know, a nice, beautiful, sunny San Diego, I'm closer to home near kind of near Connecticut. And, uh. Back in the states, um, this will be better. This will be a good change for me. I'm really gonna gonna make a change, you know, um, dude. I'm living 20 minutes from Mexico now. I get off at one o'clock in the afternoon. Like I'm living in Ocean Beach. Things didn't go very well, you know what I mean? Um, and it just continued to pick up from there. And then I lost my relationship, and uh, and then I eventually lost my career because I popped positive in 2017. I was, I woke up at about 9 a.m. on someone's couch in like Spring Valley, and I had to be at work at muster in my uniform. I was active duty, um, and I had come off like a two-day bender um, off the weekend, and I didn't show up Monday morning till nine. And our stuff starts at 6:30. Or actually, no, I didn't come into work at all that day because I knew that they were going to breathalyze me and stuff, and I would have reeked. But when I came in on that Tuesday, they said, "All right, we're going to take you to Balboa Hospital." And we're going to go have you get a fit for full duty. A fit for full duty means they take your blood. They take your urine. They take your hair. They strip you down and they look at your whole body. I mean, it is a full examination of what is going on with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I was, I mean, it was bam. You know, my urine test was a, just a, it was a fucking rainbow, dude. I had like five drugs in my system. I had like meth, cocaine, benzos. We, I I didn't even know how some of the things got in there. I'm like, I didn't do that. I guess I did. (laughs) Anyway, so Um, so the gig was up, you know, um, and they had actually tried to help me before this point, you know, they sent me to, uh, they sent me to rehab actually, uh, in early 2017, uh, SARP, which is substance abuse rehabilitation program. And it's a military rehab in Point Loma here in San Diego. Um, I don't know if you guys know it, but, um, I went there and actually this is where I first got introduced to AA. Um, this is where I first got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, unwillingly, of course, but this is where I first got introduced. So I was at that residential facility for 30 days. Um, and, you know, they bus you to meetings um, a couple times a week. And so I, we, I went to this one meeting and it was in La Jolla and it was uh, the men's Saturday morning um, in La Jolla, like a 9 a.m. It was a really good meeting. And I, I, I didn't know AA and I, I walked in there and I was like, wow, everybody seems like pretty like okay with life in here, you know, and like they can't all be fucking with me, you know what I mean? Like there has to be something going on um, that whatever I'm doing is not it, you know, um, and I was down with it, you know, like I wanted to get sober, I wanted to stop drinking um i was starting to realize that okay my life really is like falling apart like this is no longer a phase like you're losing all this stuff because of the substances you know um but i was so new to it that i didn't realize that you had to put a hundred percent in i figured i could only do some of what you uh suggested or i could only read a few of the pages and it would really click or i could still keep my old friends i just have to make a couple new ones you know what i mean like and unfortunately, that's that. That was not enough. Um, so when I left there, I drank, and then that's when I popped for the drugs, and ultimately left the military. Um, and then I moved out to East County. Um, I was kicked out of the military after seven and a half years, and I had lost my career. I lost like the only thing that I knew. And and yeah, I was upset because I I ha- didn't have a job in the beginning. I eventually struck a job and was a mechanic, but I liked it and it was okay, and it was a steady paycheck. Um, I didn't love it, you know, um, but I was just such a liability at the end that it was like for the best that I got kicked out. But because I left because of drugs, they offered me no transition, no help when I got out. And I was just out on the street with a DD two fourteen and a bad discharge in the military. And that's, it's fucking hard. It's hard to do anything about that because I had no money. I had no resources. My family was done with me. Um, and so I was very much alone. You know, I, I I I was able to weasel some money out of my father um, and get a one-bedroom little place out in El Cajon, so I wasn't homeless, which was really good to start. Um, and you know, I just kept making up this bullshit that I was looking for a job, this and that, and I just I dove into meth, um, and it just spiraled from there. I started IV drug use, um, and it just got really really crazy. Um, And during this time, I met my now wife. Um, I was so, you know, I look back on it and the worst part of my addiction and being in the grips of it was the fact that I was just so alone, like no one wanted anything to do with me anymore. And, And there's that famous quote, like the opposite of addiction is connection and all this stuff. But I really find that to be true. Um, I, I, I did not have any love in my life. I I didn't have anyone to talk to. Um, I just ran off of my best thinking 24 seven, which was fucking awful. I was doing meth. So obviously I wasn't thinking very clear and I was just running off of self-will and I was, I was fucked. Um, and I met this girl through online dating. I tried to present myself as this like guy who really had it together and she could tell I was a fucking mess, but we had a couple good conversations, you know? Um, and at that point I wasn't even on there on the online dating to actually go on a date. I just wanted to talk to someone. I just wanted to have a, I just wanted a friend, you know, I would go to the bars and I would buy people drinks just so I could have a conversation with them. So they would fucking like me. I was just so alone, you know, and I remember sitting holed up in that apartment and, you know, I thought about how those meetings were good and all this stuff, but I just, there's no way I can get back there. I'm too far gone, you know? And at this point I was suicidal and I was dealing with this mental health shit and um, you know, looking back on it now, like I realized that that entire time that I was suicidal, I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live that life anymore. And I didn't know how to get out of it, you know. Um, and that and that's sad because I have a lot of veteran friends that are um that have committed suicide. I mean, there's at least 10 in the past couple of years um that I knew personally that have died. Um because they get so caught up in this, this mental health or this addiction stuff and they don't see a way out. Um, and they're, you know, in the military, we're taught to become this, this tough unit. And then all of a sudden it ends and everybody goes to separate parts of the earth and you just got to figure out your own life. And, and it's, um, many of us struggle. We don't see a way out. We don't have those connections like we had and we end it. Um, and I didn't have the balls to do that. Um, you know, by the grace of God. So my wife is a, uh, is a Buddhist. She's Cambodian. Her parents escaped the Khmer Rouge in the 70s um, when the communists were taking over and Pol Pot was executing all the Cambodian people. Um, And uh, her parents are like spiritual healers. And she talked to them and she said, hey, I met this guy. Um, He's pretty fucked up. But I, I think... I think we should help him. And her parents went through this whole thing where they do this ceremony and stuff. And they said, okay. And they hadn't even met me yet. And they said, okay, we're going to help this guy. So she came over one day and, and we had just built up a friendship. And she said, hey, I'm, I want to, you know, I, I get emotional talking about this, but she offered me a place to stay at her house because she knew I was dying. And, um, and it, it saved my life because it was the only, um, it was the only person that I had left. It, there was only one person left and that was her. Um, and she gave me a shot and it's risky to move someone very sick into your home like that um, because they're either going to get help or they're going to steal all your shit or, or hurt your family. You know what I mean? Like it, it could go, you know, only a couple ways. And um, she said, make me a promise that there's no using. And you know, I said, sure, sure. I, I I just wanted any situation that was better. Um, and I did end up using there and, and, you know, we had back and forth and we got into a lot of fights and I decided, okay. And I would, I was going to sober livings at this point and then going back to her house. And and I was really trying to do the deal, but I was still not putting a hundred percent in. And, you know, by this time I had done a few rehabs, detoxes, and I finally went back in 2019, I went to the Anaheim lighthouse. Um, And I, something clicked. I had this, uh, actually Carly, you'll get a kick out of this. I was at this meditation yoga session. I was there, like I was there, like I, you know, (laughs) only a few days and I was at this meditation and yoga session and it was with all the new guys. And, you know, people are like coming off of heroin and all these hard drugs and just like sweating and disgusting out there in the sunlight. (laughs) And, And I had this like moment of clarity, um, this, she was coming around with this like scented oil thing. And everybody was like, wow, it smells so good. Everybody talks about it at the facility. Like, oh, it's so nice when she comes around, it smells so good. It was like a positive part of the day. You know what I mean? And uh, so I was like, okay. And I was like sitting there laying back and I was like, man, I can't wait for her to come around to me. It's like this nice scent that ends the session, whether it's like lavender or something. I don't know. Anyway, I'm like, why haven't I smelled it yet? Where is she? What's going on? You know? And all of a sudden, like, it was kind of cloudy out and like the clouds separated and the sun like hit my face like hard. And I was like hot as hell. And I was like, Oh my God, this is really hot. And then all of a sudden it came by my face and I had this like beautiful scent. And I I don't know what it was like. People talk about spiritual experiences and these things. And like, for me, that was like only eligible people are, you have to have, you have to be like a monk sitting upon a mountaintop or like, I'm not eligible for some sort of spiritual experience or anything like that. But really, I didn't realize that a spiritual experience could just kind of be a moment of clarity, you know? And it really hit me that like, okay, if you just be patient and wait for this thing and wait for, you know, the benefits of this thing, but do all the work, it will come, but you have to stick it out. You have to wait, you have to chill out. It's not going to be instant. It's going to take a while. And it just hit me. And I said, you know what? I'm finding a sponsor today. And I found a sponsor. He's still my sponsor today. That was March. Like I went into rehab March 6th of 2019. Um, I still have the same sponsor. Um, and I actually, you know when I got out of rehab I did go to um I did a step down because I knew full well that I can't go back to the same environment. I need some accountability. I need some structure. That's why I mentioned the structure. I knew in the beginning that always was something that worked well for me. So I did a sober living. I did an uh, intensive outpatient through Kaiser um and I did this kind of step down back into normal life and I was successful for about 19 months. I was successful for about 19 months and uh my wife and I were both working from home. I ended up getting a job, uh, working for a big insurance company. I was, uh, doing sales and stuff like that. You know, I like talking to people and it was going well, I was making good money. Um, but we were working from home and my wife had a can of duster out on the, uh, out on the key, like by the keyboard. And, I always knew full well that that's not going to show up on a drug test. It's not going to smell. But when, every time I would pass that can, I'd be like, oh, I'm above that. That's, that's the old me. That's the old me. You know, and by now we're in the pandemic. I'm not going to my AA meetings. My big book was collecting a little bit of dust. And uh, one day I woke up and I hit that thing. And a couple, you know, later that afternoon, I was almost right back to where I started. I was calling out of work. I was lying to my wife. I was stealing the duster because I didn't want to pay for it, even though I had the money. Um, And so I was almost within a 24-hour period, right back to where I was 19 months prior. So um, I got a hold of myself. Um, I, I had talked to my sponsor. I was, I was so messed up that I, I talked, well, you know, it wasn't alcohol or drugs. So is there any way I can keep my sober time? He's like, are you fucking kidding me? Absolutely not. You know, <laughs> he's like, you willingly went out and got, and got high. I said, okay, fair enough. So I re I had to reset my clock September 17th of 2020. So, um, I'm a little over two years now. Um, you know, in that time I have become, uh, very consistent with my program. Uh, I actually just started the steps over today. Um, I'm working working the steps again. Um, I do do a twelve step program. AA was the first thing that worked for me. Um, and you know, my life is pretty good. Like I won't get into it all, but like I, I just had a baby. I got married. Um, I was able to buy a home. You know, um, and things are things are pretty good now. You know, I I left the insurance industry and. I started working in treatment actually, which is where I met Carly. Um, And I love it. I'm a case manager there and a counselor. Um, And I actually start my, I just graduated with my bachelor's in psychology and I start my doctorate program at Alliant university for the PsyD program next this fall. So, um, you know, it, it can be done. It's just so much fucking work, man. Like it's just so much work. Just, Getting through all the court and stuff like that, because when I got out, I got a couple DUIs, which I didn't mention. But just getting through the legal stuff and just the one day at a time phrase, man, I still struggle with that stuff. But it really is true, you know, um, taking that next indicated step and just trying to slowly make a little progress. Because the key for me to find happiness in my life again was progress. Like when I saw myself getting a little bit better each day, it made me want to continue doing what I was doing, you know? And, and I really think that the key to happiness is progress and, and that's kind of where I'm at. So,
2: <clears throat> well, thank you for sharing your story, Matt. Um, yeah. I learned some more about you today. <laughs>
3: there's a lot. I know there's a lot in there.
2: <laughs> there's a lot. And I feel like there's so much that we could unpack and for be sure. here for hours just in that little like 20 minute story, you know, yeah. of yeah. recovery and all of that. But um, yeah, I was trying to take notes a little bit to remember a couple things that I just really um, wanted to highlight, I guess, for our listeners and whoever. But um, in the very beginning, you talked about like not coming from like a background of trauma or a lack of privilege or whatever right. and I think a lot of people associate addiction and alcoholism um and substance use disorder with like coming from some kind of like fucked up history basically um but that's not always the case and there's no, no yeah there's no um I don't know, prerequisite of having a sucky life to (laughs) like end up with some of these issues. It doesn't, you know, I don't think anybody necessarily really knows, you know, why it happens. I agree. It just does. Um, Yeah. And um, you talked about like having to put a hundred percent into your recovery. Um, No, like half measures, as they say in 12 step.
3: Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Learn learn the hard way. Yeah. (laughs) What does
2: what does putting a hundred percent into your recovery look like today? Um, or just in general, I guess.
3: So mostly I would say owning up to my bullshit when it happens or making amends right away or owning it and um not acting out on emotion, which is like really hard for me. Um and always, and staying active in the program when I even don't want to go, you know. Um, but really, it's, it's, for so many years, I, I I acquired these tools as I went along, and I didn't use them. But now I, I really use them, <laughs> because I still struggle. And I reach out to people, I work with others. And, you know, I, I stepped into a role to do this for a living, you know what I mean? So like recovery is my whole kind of life right now, I still have my self-care and stuff I do on the side, but um, it's, it's, it's everything to me, you know, including the Instagram and stuff like that and and helping other people, but mainly knowing that AA has my back and that is my network. And those are my people. Mm -hmm. um, And not staying within the herd a hundred percent. So totally, yeah.
2: And yeah. I'll just add that I love that your moment of clarity was during yoga and meditation.
3: <laughs> I knew you'd like that. And
2: I like to think that some of the guys that I, I teach yoga at the treatment center he works at um, on Thursday nights. And I've been doing mm-hmm. that for like two years now. I like to think that some of them have their spiritual awakenings in our sessions. Some of them,
3: <laughs> some, of them some of them, just like in my treatment, some of them enjoy to lay down for a bit.
2: <laughs> right.
1: To have an experience. Yeah.
2: it's all good either way, but I'll let you jump in, Brian.
1: Cool. Thanks Carly. Yeah, Matt, it's interesting you talk about one of the core parts of your recovery is really emotional regulation and working with your emotions. appreciated you like getting vulnerable and sharing some of the really moving aspects of your recovery, um, especially when it comes to, you know, being with people and having someone take a chance on you. And uh, I noticed as I was looking through the Instagram that you run. I mean, there's so many like poignant moving stories. I was getting really emotional when going through that to before this interview. So I'm wondering if you could kind of tell our audience what, what is a life recovered and maybe the history yeah. of it.
3: Yeah. So um in so the pandemic was kind of getting in full swing early 2020, March or April. And I saw a lot of people relapsing. Um, I saw people dealing with domestic violence. Um, just a lot of bad shit was skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially in our recovery world, a lot of people were relapsing. That was mainly what was really frustrating to me. Um, and, uh, one of my friends, his sister was murdered by her husband and just like bad shit was happening. I was kind of bored at home and I was like, man, like, I was started posting these videos on my personal Instagram and my brother reached out to me. It was like, dude, no one wants to hear your sober shit all the time. Like you should just start on another page that's like sober related if you want to talk about that stuff. And I was like, well, that's not a bad idea. Well, what do I do? Like I was, I'm not tech savvy at all, but I was like, okay, maybe I could start something where like people could like share their individual stories. And like, I had this interview, like I'm going to go interview people all over San Diego. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Um, And what I did was I I came up with a name. I started this page. It's called a life recovered. And basically it is a page where people, I mean, it's, it's gone a ton of different ways, but basically now people submit their stories to me. Um, I, I give them an outline of kind of what we're looking for, um, you know, how it was, um, your a little bit of your experience, maybe childhood, what was the turning point, where are you at now, and how did you get there? So we kind of leave out all the war stories because we can all relate to that. But basically, I want to know where were you at, what happened, and how are you successful through that now? Um, and the hopes of doing that, and it's not just addiction, it's mental health, everything to deal with the human condition, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and the
3: hopes of doing that is that it' shows other people that they are not alone. Um, Because many people don't work 12 steps. They don't do smart recovery. They don't do celebrate recovery. They don't read. They don't do anything. They go on Instagram. So, um, and, And that's okay. And if that's what you want to do, because then there's pages like mine and many others where you can maybe get a spark of, hey, maybe it's time to try something different. Here's a story how this person was successful. They also dealt with what you dealt with. So maybe you can talk to them because that's my biggest thing. You know, I've, I've built that account completely organically. I've never paid for a follower. I've never paid for a, like, I built it completely organically. So people can relate to each other and have meaningful conversations on there and connect in hopes that they better themselves. And, um, it's just kind of taken on a life of its own, you know, and I do submit, uh, and I started it, sorry, in July, July 31st, 2020 was my first post. And I went to ocean beach. And I did this little video out in, out kind of near the ocean where this is, what, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. And it was hard at first too, because I had like 40 followers and people were like, dude, who's who the fuck is this guy asking for my personal story? Like, I don't know this guy. So what I had to do was I had to actually ask like close friends and people that knew me to help me get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was able to start building stories. So all the first stories are everybody that I know from my personal life. And then it evolved into people being like, okay, well, they did it. So I'll do it, you know? And it just kind of went from there. And I was doing like memes and stuff in the beginning and and it was fun to make them, but it was like, okay, I don't know if people are getting any value out of memes right now. So let me switch it up and let's really, you know, that's when I dove in and I started doing before and after photos and illustrating the transition, you know what I mean? And, um, I have stories that are all very unique on there. Some of them are very intense very, very intense. Um, I have stories on there, um, of, you know, women that were raped. I have stories on there of people that have murdered parents or murdered children. I have stories on there, um, of a guy that actually drove, he's a, a good friend of mine now. And he drove, uh, was under the influence and he got in a car accident and he killed two people that were in, he killed two people that were sober and in recovery. Wow. Um, his name is Martin Lockett. He's out of Washington. He's a really good guy. But um, so I have these really like wild stories on there and then people see these and they just are like, wow, like some of this has happened to me and that's work for that person. Maybe I can do that. Or, hey, that's really bad. I don't want that to happen to me. So maybe I should make a change. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, and I think it's working and it is part of my program. I mean, it's a little bit of way to me to be of service. You know, I don't make a dime off of I don't do advertisements. I don't tell you to buy shit. I just post on there in hopes that it can resonate with you. So.
2: Well, it's super well done and very inspirational. And I want to say that I probably started following that account like before you had 68,000 followers yeah, on yeah. there or whatever, because yeah. it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. So crazy to see how like it's, it's evolved and yeah, probably one of my favorite recovery accounts. That I follow for sure because of how real it is. And like, there's no sugarcoating.
3: No, there's (laughs) not. And that's actually a a downside, too, because I get banned or I have, I violate community guidelines all the time. So I have to like really be careful with what I do. (laughs) Don't block me on that. I know. Once I get enough money one day, I'm going to buy Instagram and I'm going to let anyone post whatever they want. <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, no, but that, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, um, sometimes they'll, they would just remove my stuff that I work hard to put out because it wow. mentions a drug or it, you know, they're just, it's strict on there, but I do be as real as possible. You wow. know what I mean? I'm not going to change and tailor it, you know, to, <laughs> cause I, I have a mission and that's it is what it is. So
2: Amazing.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, um, as we kind of wrap up, we wanted to leave people um, with some insights and, you know, just little nuggets for them to take away after they've spent however long (laughs) listening to us talk here. But what's an important insight that stuck with you um, during your healing journey?
3: So the best thing that stuck with me was a conversation that I had with a counselor when I went to treatment and started to take it seriously. And he said, Hey, um, you have to get to a point where you realize that you don't know what's best for you anymore. And you have to put your faith in another human being that has walked this path. Because like I mentioned, I was always running off self-will, um, and I needed someone else to to show me the way how to live a better life because I didn't know how to do it. And I had to be vulnerable to that person, and I had to open up. And it doesn't just mean step work, but I had to I had to trust that um, they could possibly guide me in a right direction. And I can I can listen to them, and I can get better. You know, so um, getting a mentor or a sponsor or someone in your life that you can open up to um, mm-hmm. is very key. Um, and open up to on all levels is very important for you to make progress. Um, so I think that would be the most important thing was, is get to a point where you can communicate to someone, doesn't have to be everyone, but to someone about what's going on. Um, I think that would be, that's my best insight. That's what helped me the most was be like, okay, I I can't do this on my own, whether it's mental health addiction, anything, I can't do this on my own. I need to open up to someone.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank thank you for that, Matt. So, so beautiful. uh, As a kind of final takeaway to your insight for our audience is to find someone you can talk to. And I'd like to invite people who have made it this first of all, so much gratitude to you, you, Matt, for your vulnerability. Maybe folks who are watching this who are just encountering uh, uh, Recovery Corner and um, uh, young people in recovery for the first time, um, we'd love to have you join us in some of our meetings, our all-recovery meetings, where you can have honest and frank conversations about mental health and recovery. We, of course, uh, invite all of you to check out A Life Recovered in the work Works Matt do, Matt's doing. Um, what do you think, Carly and Matt, any final takeaways before we say goodbye? No, I think that's yeah. it. I appreciate you having me on.
2: Yeah, super appreciate you, Matt, um, for taking the time to join us. Um, and yeah, we have people at YPR who want to connect with everybody, whether they're in recovery or no people in recover, no people who are struggling or want to be in recovery, et cetera. We have resources and, um, yeah, that's about all I have to say. It's been awesome.
1: <laughs> awesome. We'll see take you next care. time, everyone. All right. Take care.